Welcome to the Saturday Blitz Podcast with your tailgater crew, John Mitchell and Zach Bogalki. Welcome back again to the Saturday Blitz Podcast, everybody. I'm Zach Bogalki. I'm here today with John Mitchell again. We're here today to talk about the NCAA's recent talk around updating the graduate transfer rule as well as a look at the five stadiums John and I would love to see a game in in person. So I know you've been a bit under the weather, John, lately. Uh, how are you feeling today? I'm getting there. It's been uh, it's been a rough few days. Um, the last uh, last few days have been pretty pretty rough, but you know, not not enough to knock me out of the saddle here. I'm excited to talk more about about football with you. Certainly. Well, I, I think actually today the right place to start is something that's really swirled around March Madness especially, and I know it's uh, especially hit a school that's somewhat dear to your heart in terms of Texas Tech um, with the talk around the NCAA graduate transfer rule. Yeah, um, there was a, a New York Times article that uh, came out this, uh, I guess, last week now, and uh, kind of discussing the fact that there could be some changes to the grad transfer rule, not to the point that graduate transfers couldn't go and play, but to the point that if um, the person doing the grad transferring doesn't get their graduate degree at the school they transfer to, then they would have to the the team would have to burn a scholarship for an extra year for that specific player. And I thought what was interesting in the article and a good point is this might not affect football as much as it affects basketball because. You know, for basketball, you only get 13 scholarships. So losing one extra year could be really significant. Football, you get 85. So it's not as bad, you know, in in football terms. But either way, um, I know we're probably both on the same page with the fact that that rule doesn't need tinkering. I think when that came out in 2011, it was one of the better rules that I've seen in college football, you know, letting – letting people transfer. I mean, well, these people have already graduated, right? So yeah. wh- what is the benefit in not letting them move on to another school? They have remaining eligibility. Restricting that makes no sense to me. And just because they don't get their master's degree right away as well, you all the time see guys going back to school after even they've been in the pros during the off season for their professional sport. They'll go back to school and, and finish that, that degree program. Yeah, it's really, I I think one thing that really speaks to that, what they're talking about with the rule is eliminating a scholarship for a program if that person doesn't get their graduate degree in one year. And as somebody who has completed a master's program, it needed a solid two years. And I was on, you know, a graduate teaching fellowship where I was grading papers and I was doing discussion sections. And honestly, that even was less time than a Division I scholarship athlete puts into their job. Because we've said it before, I'm going to say it right out again. It's a job playing these sports, especially the revenue sports, where you're in it for generously 40 hours a week, most often more in terms of the training, the rehabilitation, the having to get up early, the working it around classes and everything else that comes with it. And with this graduate transfer degree, what's been there before is simply an acknowledgement by the NCAA that their core mission is trying to get people to go through school. 
their whole their whole spiel is talking about wanting people to graduate, wanting to grow pro in something other than sports. Well, these people got a degree. They actually fulfilled on exactly what you're talking about. And to want to go and further that even more when they did it in a, a truncated amount of time that allows them to have eligibility even with, you know, going into grad school excuse my language, but why in the hell would you pub, you know, punish them for this? That's completely ridiculous. Yeah. And it only really, you know, ends up affecting the players when you're doing this as well. Like, cause they're the ones who end up being stuck at a school that maybe they don't want to be stuck at, you know, not everyone's grad transferring for a specific graduate program. A lot of these guys are grad transferring, like the guys at Texas Tech that you mentioned, Tariq Owens and Matt Mooney, because yeah. they thought Texas Tech gave them the best opportunity to to play an extra year of basketball, get noticed maybe by scouts for professional leagues, and then potentially, you know, make the NCAA tournament. Yeah. So but even then, like who cares? Like why is that why is that an issue? And it was funny because I know one of the big champions against it in that article was John Calipari, who was saying that he didn't want um, the graduate transfer rule to continue as is and that they should be doctor scholarship. And he took advantage of the grad transfer rule himself this year with Reed Travis coming yep. from Stanford to Kentucky as a graduate transfer. Exactly. So he took advantage of that rule already. So I, I just don't see the benefit in tightening the restrictions. I mean, you and I both have talked on here before Zach about the fact that we think people should be able be able to transfer with impunity anyway like yeah, just as John. regular if, even after their freshman year who cares and now you want to tighten the guys who have already earned their undergraduate degree that makes zero sense to me it's once again a case of the ncaa being remarkably tone deaf uh during a period of time when the landscape's kind of changing to the point that you know more and more people think the way you and i think about letting these kids move on um if they're not happy in their current situations and now they want to take they want to restrict graduate transfer, and that's just—it just blows my mind that that would even be a thought. Yeah, I, I really—it comes back to what we've talked about before, and the NCAA having things sort of fall away from them in other regards. You know, we said once they started looking at what grant and aid was going on that falling to conferences rather than the NCAA getting to dictate it, they were going to try to pull their strings wherever they could. And it feels really like this is the NCAA trying to get their hand in wherever they can at this point. It, there's really no utility to it. This doesn't make more money. This doesn't, you know, improve the educational experience for the student, which is the core mission, ostensibly, of the NCAA. They want to talk about caring about that student and the student first and foremost, and it's a student athlete. And if you're going to go to that point, you have to really respect the student aspect of it. And if you're going to allow eligibility to continue as a graduate, which in the case of Harvard isn't possible or any of the Ivy League schools isn't possible, you can't play as a graduate student, even if you still have eligibility the Ivy Leagues have agreed not to play graduate students. And so if you're a player that decided to go get an Ivy League education, for instance, and you finish that within three years, first of all, 
more power to you. You finished an Ivy League degree in three years on top of playing basketball or football for however many hours a week you had to prepare for that and then play on, you know, your weekends. And if you still manage to get your degree and you still want to play a sport and pursue another degree, how can how can the NCAA knock that down? That like those are the model students that you'd think they'd be putting at the front of their website and in all of their advertisements. That's what would be showing during March Madness right now. Look at the the, the different guys around the country that have gone through the graduate transfers. You mentioned Owens and Mooney especially, and it, there's that's what they should be celebrating. Like, these are guys who didn't go one and done. Like, if we're going to look at this from a basketball context, especially, these are the guys who didn't go one and done. But, you know, coming back to our college football context, these are the guys who didn't go pro early. These are the guys who really stuck with the sport at the college level and really embraced the mission of getting something that would pay long after their Bodies broke down beyond getting to play professionally. How can you not reward setting that up? How would you punish a school for bringing in a guy who wants to really set themselves up for the future? Because this isn't something where it's going to be the individual who gets hurt. The student gets to still go do that. But one thing that came up for me is if you're going to punish the school for a second year if they don't get their degree right away... Does that mean the student who was there gets to get a second year toward their master's degree? Are you going to give that scholarship to the player who has no more eligibility but still deserves to be there finishing up their graduate degree they came to start? That's really what, if you're going to put something like this in place, you have to do that or you're absolutely hypocritical. Right, right. They should be able to play again, right? Like the next year, they should be exactly. able to do that if that's going to be the case. That exactly, it's, it's another case Give them of a the six NCAA year. wanting to take every bit of control the players might have, any infinitesimal amount of control the players have, and just take it away from them so the NCAA can have every bit of it. It makes no sense. Once you graduated, you know these these players are locked into their scholarships and whatever. However, you know you view that. Once you've graduated, that's over. You know, your your duties at your current school are over. You've graduated. And, you know, some of those kids might want to go to graduate programs at the school they graduated yeah. with their undergraduate degree from, which is great. More power to you if you want to do that. But if you have the opportunity – and, you know, another thing that I, I don't think even gets mentioned is a lot of these kids are coming from smaller schools and they've, you know – performed well enough at these schools and graduated and they've gotten the opportunity for some blue blood type programs or some bigger programs yeah. to notice them. You know, they, they, you know, maybe weren't heavily recruited coming out of high school, like, like Matt Mooney, for instance, for, for Texas tech, he wasn't a heavily recruited kid coming out of high school. I believe he started at air force or something yeah. like that. And yeah. then transferred to South Dakota yeah. after a year and and I mean he de- he didn't have offers from places like Texas Tech or any no, you know high yeah. major conference. But you know he worked hard. He got his degree. He proved enough on the basketball court that he got an opportunity from several schools who were interested in, in him being a grad transfer of their program. And now it, it, it's been remarkable for him. And you're going to take potentially take the opportunity away from kids like that that have done everything right yeah. for four years. 
and then take that away from other kids who are doing the right thing. It just doesn't, it doesn't really make sense to me. I think it's really stupid. And, you know, there's a vote coming up on it. Maybe it'll be shot down. I just, I have very little faith in the NCAA doing the right thing. No, exactly. Well, and it's one of those things where I, hopefully public perception sways it to the point where they don't end up voting for this. You know, this still isn't a locked in deal. And it's something I'm sure you and I are both going to keep an eye on. So obviously follow our writing, follow our Twitter. You're going to hear more about this for sure as we get to that final vote. But it's crazy, too, Zach, yeah. real quick. Um, if it wasn't for Billy Witts, the New York Times writer who, you know, put that together, I think that would have flown completely under the radar. Like the NCAA was trying to keep that off the map. I hadn't heard anything about that until he published that article. So shout out to him for doing the reporting to, to get that out there because I think it's important. And hopefully enough people will kind of rail against it in the coming week or so that, you know, there's a lot of pressure on the NCAA to do the right thing here. Yeah, and that was really the groundswell. Definitely that initial reporting is huge. And, you know, definitely thank you for the shout-out to Wits because that his work was indispensable here. And, it, you know, especially putting it in the timely fashion of framing it around Matt Mooney and Tariq Owens, I think that was a really brilliant way of doing it because it – these are two guys who were doing it the right way, who went through all the hoops the NCAA required them to jump as it goes, and, you know, never got a shot at the tournament before. And, you know, part of their transfer was like, you know, we'd love to have that opportunity. You talk about this as an opportunity for student-athletes, and we never got it before. Let's see if we can get there. It, it, that's indispensable for a player moving along the way. Because as you said, that's a way to, to put yourself out there further to scouts. That's a way for these guys especially to get further training in what could be their long-term career, which again, not to harp on it, but to harp on it, is the NCAA's absolute quote-unquote mission to to penalize a school for giving a guy an opportunity to do that, we're on the same page. I, I'd love to hear where other people are about this because, you know, the, the talk often when you talk around compensation and athletes is they get that scholarship. But if you're being used up and the school gets penalized and you don't get the scholarships enough to complete that advanced degree that you sought out and that they offered you, you better rethink what you're telling the general public. Right. And there's going to be some schools who still take the risk, I'm sure, even if this legislation passes. But there's going to be schools that aren't really able to do that. Like burning, like I said earlier, in basketball especially, burning an extra scholarship could be devastating. You're talking about only getting 13 to begin with. And, you know, if you've got to burn an extra one for a year because, you know, you or in Texas Tech's case, they've got several grad transfers. Yeah. And you see that all across the country yeah. in college basketball teams are made up of a ton of grad transfer yeah. players. So you're talking about Texas Tech. They would be down potentially two scholarships next year and have to go with 11 guys and then some walk ons to fill out the roster. Exactly. And I mean, that could be devastating for them and probably something they weren't wouldn't really be able to do. And, you know, and depending on how your season finishes, you might trade that for the opportunity to play for a national championship. But, you know, I again, with football, it might not matter as much. But my biggest thinking with it is also the fact that you've got these smaller school guys who get an opportunity. Like, tying it back into football, 
I remember you remember Derek Dieter, who was a mm-hmm. wide receiver at Bowling Green. Oh yeah. And played remarkably well for, you know, three years at Bowling Green and then trans got the opportunity to transfer to Alabama. Like that kid yeah. getting to go from a Mac school to the SEC, he didn't have any SEC offers coming out of high school. Not just the SEC, but like the peak of college football getting to play for Alabama. I mean that's yeah. I mean that's incredible for him. Yeah. And I just, I just don't want to see those opportunities go away because a lot of these kids get passed <laughs> over in the recruiting process, prove themselves at smaller schools, and have the opportunity of a lifetime to go and play for a bigger program for a year or two years maybe, you know, depending on how quickly we're able to graduate. Totally. And it's just not something I want to see go away. I don't think it's fair. I just I don't see any positives that come out of it other than the NCAA just trying to put a stranglehold on everything once again. And I, and the, for the coaches that are whining about it, you know what, get over it. Like yeah. it's, it's fair game because everybody can do it. If there was yeah. only a set number of schools allowed to do it, sure. But yeah. everyone's got the same opportunities to do, uh, to scout for grad transfers and pull people in. There's no reason this should even be a discussion. Like I said, the one pro, the one set of schools that might have a gripe about it is the Ivy League, who don't, you know, right. who have the agreement not to allow graduate students to play for their teams. Other than that, and that's an agreement they all have. If we're talking Division One sports, that's just what's there. Otherwise, it is fair game. And one thing that really has come up for me in thinking about this over the past couple days is what this might really lead to is a slew of new, excuse my language, but bullshit degrees being set up that you can get in one year for your master's degree, where it's, you know, like we've heard about this in academic scandals in the past of people being steered toward undergraduate degrees degrees and sham courses and this could really set up a new paradigm of setting up one-year master's programs that don't really set you up to really claim an advanced degree and the education that's required to get it but nevertheless allow you to skirt these NCAA regulations and keep your scholarships. Yeah you'll see anytime there's something like this you're going to see coaches and universities do whatever they can to kind of skate around whatever rules and stuff the NCAA pulls up. So if that means they've got to get a master's degree in underwater basket weaving, then that's what they're going to go for. Yeah. And they can do that program in a year and they're left no better off. But like I said before, these players, you see players all the time come back to school and finish, like just because they started the graduate program and they go off to the NFL. Maybe in another semester or two, maybe in the offseason, they'll come back and start taking classes. I mean, you see stuff like that all the time from professional athletes during the offseason going back to finish classes just because they want to get that degree. And, and I mean, lessening the ability to do that, just is, it's stupid. Well, and I mean, it won't lessen the ability for the individual to do that if they can pay for it. Like the question really right. still for me is if that if that scholarship is going to be burned, is it going to be burned on the person who came for their first year and still needs a second year of graduate courses to get a master's? If you're right. if you're yeah. yeah, if you're paying for that student, that's great. As much as I think it's a stupid decision, I respect it if you're mandating putting it on the player that you committed to in the first place. You know, that's something at least in terms of the players favor but it doesn't favor future players if programs are going to restrict that or if they're going to give them master's degrees in something that will be of little utility of 
to them. Right. And like I said, hopefully there'll be enough public outcry um, in the next week or so to where this isn't a thing. And we can talk about it um, on the next podcast or the podcast after that about them actually getting something right for once. But I wouldn't hold my breath. No, I'm certainly not either. Um, but definitely, uh, depending on how you feel out there, if you're uh, with us, please definitely spread this around. We'd love to uh, hear your comments as well. But for now, we're going to take a quick break before we come back and talk about the five stadiums that each of us would love to see a game at. Stay tuned. Welcome back, everybody, from the break. Uh, thanks for staying tuned. We're here today to talk about the five stadiums where we would love to see a game at. Um, so, John, I know you had a couple on your list for sure that are must-see games. What's one of them for you? How are we going to do it, Zach? You want to go five to one, or you just want to talk about them in no particular order? What do you think? You know, I don't have any specific order for the ones I put on my list, so let's just go you know, whatever, okay. whatever hits your fancy and we'll get to five. Yeah. I think that the first one that's always come to mind, and I think you and I have talked about this one in the past is the Rose bowl mm-hmm. um, in LA. Like I, I, you know, going to Pasadena uh, for, and specifically not just to go, you know, watch UCLA play or something like that, but to go watch the Rose bowl, yeah. you know, like, you know, cause there's not a better, environment i don't think in college football then you know the sun setting on the rose bowl is that kickoff and everything just aesthetically watching that game every year it's always one of my favorite games to get to sit back and watch just because it looks so beautiful it's also it's obviously one of the most historic stadiums too it's one of the oldest it's been down it's been there forever you know the granddaddy of them all as they call it, you know, even getting to see some of the stuff like the Rose Parade and stuff like that beforehand, like the, the aesthetic of the Rose Bowl, I don't think it gets any better than that. So one of these days I'd really like to go out there, um, to actually see a game there. I think that would, if I had to choose one and I don't want to go in particular order, but if I had to choose one, that would probably be the one. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, it's one that really, I don't know if it'd be number one on my list, but the Rose Bowl definitely fell in for me as well. Just, you know, the, like you said, the sun setting over the San Gabriel Mountains there, nestled in the Arroyo Seco there. It's it's one of those things that's timeless. Like, you can look up old, you know, like you look up an ESPN classic of the Rose Bowl, and you look at any one of those games over the years and it just ties in so beautifully across time. You know, the most recent iterations of the game are just as instant classic as anything else. And there are so many of those games I wish I'd seen in the past there. And I'm sure there are going to be more coming up that I won't be there for. And I, 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 I'm just going to see them and wish I'd been there to see it. And, that stadium definitely falls in that top five on my list for sure. Um, And I think, you know, just in that same vein, a second one for me, and it might not be one that immediately rings for a lot of college football fans, but it's the Yale Bowl, which really inspired the, the building of the Rose Bowl. And just... There's, you know, as a historian of sport and of college football, it's one of those things for me that just is timeless again. 
Um, I'd love especially to go see the game between Yale and Harvard there, obviously. That would be the game I'd want to see if there's any one that you could. And But, you know, any game there would just be absolutely amazing for the atmosphere of it. Just looking at the history and where Yale has been over the years, it's one of those schools that is instrumental into the fact that we're sitting here talking about college football today. And just all the people that have come through there have been so instrumental to the development of the sport from that early age. And getting to see a game in sort of that cradle of it would just be phenomenal. Right. I like how we're really on the same page here because I I thought the Yale Bowl slash Harvard Field mm-hmm. um, was kind of on my list as an A and B on, yeah. on one of the five just because seeing Harvard and Yale play, I mean, that's, you know, one of college football's oldest, most fiercest rivalries, you know, and, and it's not – People don't pay attention to it as much anymore because they're FCS schools and everything, but it's still a game I check in on every year when they play each other because, you know, it has that historical value. And, you know, like you mentioned with the Yale Bowl, it was the first bowl stadium, like the first bowl design stadium. So it inspired, you know, the Rose Bowl and and places like that. Everywhere. um, Yeah, everywhere. Right. And then Harvard Field's the second oldest active um, college football stadium. So both of those were definitely on my list. And another one I wanted to mention, I don't know if it would be in my top five, but um, just because we're staying in the Ivy League kind of section, Franklin Field. Oh, Penn, yeah. Because um, that is the oldest college football stadium that's active. So they, yep. you know, still playing games there. Um and that stadium opened, I want to say, I, I can't remember for sure, I want to say the late 1800s it, it opened um, its gates. And, you know, so much history in those old Ivy League stadiums. So, I mean, one of these days, maybe I'll just make a trek through the Ivy League and go watch a bunch of games and stuff in those stadiums. I think that would be a lot of fun. Certainly. No, and honestly, I'm actually taking a trip out to the East Coast in a couple of weeks, and it's going to be fun because I'm heading to the campus of one of the stadiums where I'd really love to see a game, and that's uh, Beaver Stadium in State College. You know, that just sort of monolith there has been home of so many just outstanding games over the years and so many outstanding teams and you know like getting to see a whiteout there at Penn State would just be absolutely phenomenal especially as somebody who grew up rooting for Wisconsin you know if I could see a Badgers game there against Penn State and be the one little speck of red in the stands among the whiteout would just be absolutely (laughs) awesome I, I, it's one of those, you know, sometimes you, you wake up from a fever dream and you're like, oh yeah, I was the one red guy in the stands among all the white. Um, so that's something that really sticks out for me. And I'm, you know, it it might be possible in the future because I'm heading out there partially because it's one of the grad schools I'm looking at, uh, down the road for this fall. And, uh, so I might absolutely be, uh, moving from Pac-12 territory to Big Ten territory, and we'll see what what happens there developing down the road. Certainly keep you updated after I get to visit there. Um, but yeah, that might actually be one of those games that's a possibility. But what that also sets up is the possibility, like you said, to go to some of those other classic Ivy League stadiums 
certainly much closer to places like Penn and to even like Princeton um, right. than I, I am here on the West Coast in California. So that would that would certainly be a treat if that does fall into place on multiple levels. Um, but yeah, definitely Beaver Stadium and one of those whiteout games is certainly something I'd love to see down the road. Yeah, that was on my list too, specifically a night game at mm-hmm. Beaver Stadium when they have the whiteout. It's just, you watching it on TV, I'm sure it doesn't even do it justice, but it's such an electric environment. I remember, um, I believe it was this past year that Ohio State played there. It was Ohio State-Penn State game early in the season, and you know Penn State looked like they were going to win. Ohio State ended up coming from behind and winning there the in the fourth quarter. I mean, that environment there, the whiteout for that game was just unbelievable. Yeah. Like it was absolutely unreal to see it and being there for that and getting to, you know, feel the intensity and probably even feeling the stand shake as all these crazy uh, Penn State fans are jumping up and down, um, excited for their team. And obviously it has the historical value as well because Penn State's one of the, you know, top programs in college football history. So, yeah, I, that's that's definitely on my list as well. Specifically, like I said, a night game, getting to see a wide yeah. out there. Um, Just that contrast, the, yeah. Yeah. Sticking in the Big Ten, too, um, another one of those A's slash B's for me because I cheat and couldn't come up with just five. <laughs> would Perfect. be either the Big House or the Horseshoe to see an Ohio State-Michigan game yeah. um, live would be a lot of fun. Doesn't really I don't really have a preference, I guess, on which stadium. Both of those are historic stadiums for two blue blood programs who you know have a ton of history uh, surrounding them, two very older, older type of stadiums. So um, I'd probably lean towards the horseshoe a little bit more, I guess. But, you know, the horseshoe, the big house, whichever, um, getting to see a game in either one of those stadiums, especially getting to see an Ohio State-Michigan game because it's one of the, you know, preeminent rivalries in college football. Oh, yeah. Would be would be incredible. Yeah, I, I definitely agree and see. It's funny you mentioned you'd lean toward the horseshoue because I'd honestly lean toward the big house. And maybe that's just the connotations of Appalachian State kicking Michigan's ass there in 2007. <laughs> but, and, you know, just me getting an absolute kick out of that, both as a Wisconsin fan and as a fan of smaller schools. But, um, yeah, I think either one of those stadiums would just be an absolute treat. Can't argue with there in, in the least. And for me, I, I'm going to stay in the Big Ten as well. And for me, it, it rings closer to home because at my earliest college football fandom stage, I was a Wisconsin fan because my family is all from Wisconsin and that's who my parents rooted for, et cetera, et cetera. I've never seen a game at Camp Randall Stadium. I would love to be there for that, you know, intermission jump around. I would. You mentioned the stands rocking. There's nothing more rocking than the stands there in the student section at Camp Randall for jumping around. And I, I, I could not fathom getting to experience that. Like, it's one of those things where I go back to visit my parents and they're two hours away from Madison. I've still never done that. I've just never gotten there at the right time of year to make that happen. But it's one of those things, one of these years I've, now that I say it out here out loud to all of you football fans out there, I am going to make it happen and I'm going to make it happen in the (laughs) next five years. 
because that needs to happen considering everything there around that. Um, yeah, you've got to you've got to go. Even if it's for a smaller game, and they're playing. Oh yeah, whoever you know, it doesn't it doesn't matter. Getting for you as a as a that being one of your formative teams growing up, I think it'd be important for you to finally get to go there. And I I'm rooting for that to happen. I'm sure it will. And everyone, I'll hold him to that, and everyone listening will also hold you to that to yep. make sure you get to do that. Yeah, five years, everybody. And honestly, I'm hoping it happens sooner. You mentioned, you know, the possibility is there for a smaller school one of these years once they schedule on a Labor Day weekend especially. You know, that's always an academic off weekend. So we're going to make that happen. Um, But, you know, like dream game would be getting to see the battle for Paul Bunyan's axe there against Minnesota. Um, and that obviously usually yeah. falls later in the season, but you know, that's also usually Thanksgiving weekend. So maybe it's taken that Thanksgiving weekend and finally getting to, to visit my parents and, um, you know, maybe even take my dad down there for a game at Camp Randall. That would be just absolutely huge. So we're going to look into that, everybody. That's, uh, definitely a number four we can make happen. So, uh. Yeah, awesome. Uh, where would you go for number four, John? Yeah, I I would say uh, another one that I'd really like to do, and it could end up being a possibility because Alabama scheduled a home-and-home home there um, within the next decade or so uh, at Notre Dame. So mm. going to South Bend and getting to watch a game there. Again, I fall into the – I'm a sucker for history, um, and I know you are too, Zach, obviously. Of uh, course. That's kind of your forte, but – um, I'm, I'm a sucker for the history of the sport and it's hard to talk about the history of the sport without including Notre Dame and without talking about South Bend, Indiana and watching a game at their stadium like it. Yeah. It, it, any, and again, it wouldn't have to be Alabama and Notre Dame. I wouldn't mind going to see them play anybody there, just getting to sit in that stadium. And again, it's, it's probably not comfort, you know, because it's yeah. one of the older stadiums and the, the bleachers probably suck and, you know, it's probably no good in that terms of stuff. But who who really cares about that? You know, you're going for the experience of having been there. And um, and I'm not even a huge, like, Notre Dame person. Like, I've never really cared for the Irish that much um, in terms of football. So I yeah. – but, again, just the historic value of, of, of Notre Dame would be a lot of fun getting to see, you know, touchdown Jesus kind of – up above the stadium, out on the background. Totally. Um, all of that. All of that would be fun, and that would be, you know, and again, that's one that could be potential. That one in um, Daryl K. Royal Stadium in Austin. Yeah. Because um, Alabama's got a home-and-home home there as well, so getting to see a game at Texas would be a lot of fun as well. Um, but, yeah, both of those, again, another A slash B, because I like to cheat at this, um, <laughs> would be would be high on my list of getting to go to, just, again, for the historical aspect. And, you know, them both being blue blood historic college football programs. I, I agree with you, especially on Notre Dame Stadium there in South Bend. I, I think it was last week that I mentioned when we were talking about just those formative experiences that part of that for me was the fact that NBC got the exclusive contract in Notre Dame football. And so as a kid sitting there flipping through seven or eight channels in Wyoming before we got, you know, Prime Star and then Direct TV, we um, 
you know, there was a lot of Notre Dame football in my college football viewing experience. And getting to see that stadium in person would just be an absolute treat. And I think it's something we also speak to in terms of the comfort of a stadium. Like we obviously, you know, the comfort of a stadium is nice, but I don't know about you, but if I'm at a game I actually care about, I'm not actually sitting on those uncomfortable bleachers very much. I'm on my feet watching the game and actively at it in the stands. Or either that or I've been in a press box and you're sitting in a folding chair typing into your laptop. So, Right, which is the same folding chair at any stadium. So it exactly. <laughs> yeah, there's nothing to that. So it's there's really no... It's it's funny, once you do that a bit, the press box really isn't that exciting. But so, yeah, the, the so, historic value of those places really can't oh. be beat. And I guess, for me, the last one that would come to mind is probably Death Valley in Baton Rouge Ooh. to go to Tiger Stadium, uh, specifically for an Alabama-LSU game there, I think oh, would be a night blast. Oh, um, too, yeah. Oh, yeah, specifically a night game. A night yeah. game in Death Valley. I, Ooh. Yeah, I I know that stadium would be absolutely nuts because just watching it on TV, you can tell it's a crazy environment, raucous LSU fans who have been doing uh, a bit of um, drinking throughout the throughout the day leading into that night game. So it's a bit as they do at every stadium there around the country. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> so it would be. That would be up there for sure. I've got a few buddies who have gone there before and said um, it was a great time, except for the fact that they were, you know, in enemy territory and having to deal with the stuff you have to deal with on the road as a college football fan. But yeah, that one would be would be incredible, um, just because again, aesthetically, you're looking at, you know, it being the lights on at Death Valley and yeah. when the the shot, the camera shot comes in on like CBS or wherever they're playing, and you get to see all the crazy LSU fans and everything there, that would be that would be a blast to go to there or getting to go to Jordan-Hare Stadium to watch an Iron Bowl. I've been to Bryant-Denny to see an Iron Bowl, so returning the favor and going across the state to Jordan-Hare and watching an Iron Bowl there would be, would be up there as well. It certainly would be fun to skip through Tumor's Corner after an Alabama win, eh? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure this, you know, the streets would be dead at that point. But, uh, you know, like you talk about going into enemy territory, and for me, that's really where I went with my last choice as well. Um, You know, as an Oregon fan and having lived there for 10 years, you know, I really lived in Eugene for the better part of 10 years, and I never went to a Civil War game at Reeser Stadium, never traveled that 45 minutes up to Corvallis to see that game. And there's something about just historic rivalries like that and getting to see a game in the home of enemy territory that sounds really compelling because honestly once you get down to it like for all the crap that we give opposing fans when they actually come to the stadium I don't know about you but I've certainly you know like you welcome people in and you give right. them a, you give them a certain amount of guff but you well you you know you're not like actively antagonizing them except from once you're in your seat shouting at their opposite tiny little corner in the stadium where they're all compacted in and that's fun. yeah i don't know what's the case for everywhere but i've i've been to bryant denny enough to know 
at least what usually takes place from what I've seen before games, you go and tailgate or whatever before the game, you'll see an opposing fan. You might have a quick, hey, you know, we're going to kick your ass today, right? Yeah. And they're like, oh, we'll see. And it's like, all right, well, you want some want some uh, barbecue we've got on the grill right it's, now because, you know, we've got plenty. You want a beer? We've got plenty in the cooler. Yeah. And that's how it goes, right? Yeah. Good-natured trash talk. And then you obviously see, you know, the crazy stories. And there's crazy fans yeah. for every program. You're going to have the, the outliers who want to start fights and stuff like that. But from my experience, for the most part, it's it's stuff like that. You know, it's good-natured ribbing and trash talk, which is, you know, the be- part of the beauty of college football and the beauty of well, sports yeah. in general is being able to brag, you know, having the bragging rights from a, from a victory. So, well, and, that's, uh, and that's how I've always viewed it. And, you know, what's funny, Zach, about going and seeing one of those rivalry games is yeah. it would be a blast if your team won. I think it would be... Just dreadful if you made that trek to watch a, to watch them lose. <laughs> there is that too, and that is always the risk that comes with it. But I think what you got to there, and what I was want to get to is, you know, for every one Al from Dadeville, there's a hundred, two hundred thousand, five hundred thousand fans that are absolutely awesome and will give you crap, yeah. and in the end of the day, will hand you a brew and help you out if crap really goes down yeah right and and they're going to be the ones who deride the terrible fans who are the ones you know yeah. causing a ruckus and stuff like that for yeah. no real good reason oh no and but every every i've never been like to a road game like that but i can tell how alabama fans that i've been around have treated people and i can tell yeah. from my uncle has been an alabama season ticket holder for the last like 30 years and he goes to one road game a year typically him and a group of friends travel and go and he'll you know come back and tell me about the ones they had a really good time at there's been some they've gone to that haven't been as pleasant you know certainly you know that's just what that probably means is they ran into that one percent of fans who are you know un unbelievably difficult to be around and get along with in that kind of environment, especially when you're dealing with people who don't take losses particularly well. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and I've certainly had to leave the stadium and go do laundry because I've broken up fights and gotten blood on my clothes. I've had that happen. And, um, you know, like that's the thing is the majority of fans are going to step in and and not just sit around and rib it on. They're going to want to defuse the situation because win or lose, it's a football game. These are kids who right. are on a scholarship to ostensibly study, as we talked about in the last segment, playing a football game. And you're there to watch and get entertained and win or lose, you're going to deal with the emotions because we're football fans and we've all had to deal with every one of those emotions. If you... right, and it's a bad look on your fan base, too, when you've got those outlier fans, because that's the stuff that makes the news cycles. That's the stuff that gets talked about for weeks on end afterwards. And that's the lasting impression that people are going to have about your entire fan base. And that's why you've got people like you and people who will jump in and try to prevent stuff like that from happening. Yeah. Because it's, you know, it's, it makes you look bad. It makes you look bad by association, if nothing else. Yeah. It's one of those things where we're there to have fun, you, you know. And as you mentioned, part of that is you have too much fun sometimes. <laughs> um, and 
the fun escalates beyond fun. And you have to step in. But at the end of the day, that's possible at any stadium. And that's certainly not going to keep me from wanting to go to any of these stadiums we've talked about. Because, like I said, most football fans are football fans. And we're all there to have a good time. Right. Yeah, no, I, I agree. All of those would be a lot of a lot of fun to go to, I think. And and the rivalry aspect of it and the historical value, I think we were really on the same page on a lot of these. Yeah, certainly. You know, seeing those epic sort of transformative locations would just be huge in terms of getting a lot. It's kind of like people who follow around and see different halls of fame, you know, and do the tour of every hall of fame. I would love to do that tour of every Ivy league school and every one of these locations where football was being played in the 1800s. I feel like I was getting away with something, getting to even be on an Ivy league campus because I certainly didn't have any opportunities and chances to go to a school like that coming out of high school. So I'd be there and feel like I'm getting away with something wrong because I'm here and I probably shouldn't be. So it's like, especially for those Ivy League schools, those kind of places have always felt unattainable for someone like me. So getting to step on one of those, and I'm sure those campuses too are just beautiful to be around. So you're not even talking about just being, you know, at the historic stadium. These are historic universities. Getting to So getting to see, right. Right, yeah, getting to walk around campus and stuff would be would be a blast. Totally, and you know, I, I'm in academia, and those still, I've never been to an Ivy League campus. You know, I've been to a lot of conferences in a lot of different places, and I've still never been to an Ivy League campus for one of these conferences. So, getting to see any of those would just be an epic event. Oh yeah, yeah. The again, the historical value of it all would be would be incredible. Um, maybe one of these days the podcast will get big enough and we can take it on the road and go to stuff like this and knock all these off our bucket list. Yeah, you you all just have to keep spreading it around over the next couple months before we get to the uh, twenty nineteen season, and perhaps we'll be hitting FCS uh, hotbeds moving forward. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that'd be I'm totally down for it. Awesome. Well, I I think on that note, we've probably given you about 15 out of our top 10 places to go. (laughs) So, um, yeah, thank you again for visiting with us and and listening. And again, please uh, hit us on Twitter at JLMitchell93 or at ZBegalke. We'd love to hear from you about everything we're uh, up to and any thoughts you'd like to hear about moving forward. So for now, thanks for listening, and we'll catch you again next Wednesday.